Beautiful people, what's going on? It's your boy Sean, and we are back for another episode of The Young and the Righteous. Like I said, uh, part one, just got through recording that, and we took a look at Genesis 22. So if you want like the exegetical, uh, epistemological, the deep theological, expositional understanding of the text, we'll try to do justice to that in Genesis 22 and part one of this one. Be sure to check that out. Uh, again, we looked at uh, the scope of Abraham's life and the brother that he is in part one. Uh, in Gen- um, excuse me, in Genesis 12, when this thing first starts and who he is 10 chapters later in Genesis 22, he is a completely different person. And that's why it's important to sometimes do character studies in the Bible, study somebody's entire life so you can see the ways in which God matures them as they say yes to him increasingly or as God pulls a yes out of them over the course of their lives. Um, Genesis 22, very familiar passage of scripture. The Bible tells us that sometime later, God tests Abraham, tells him, take your son, your only son whom you love, and go up uh, to a place that I will show you on Mount Moriah and sacrifice him there. And Abraham does that. He doesn't show any signs of hesitancy that he did in the previous chapters between 12 and 21. We see a complete, utter, and total obedience to the request of God on his life. Uh, He starts making the journey, and of course, Isaac says, I see the fire, I see the wood, but player, player, uh, where exactly is this lamb? And Abraham says, don't worry, son, the Lord will provide. They go up the mountain, he ties his son down, binds him, and gets ready to kill him. And of course, he hears a voice that says, Abraham, Abraham, whoa, hold up. Now I know that you truly fear God. I will not withhold my blessings from you. And the sevenfold promise that God gave to him in Genesis 12, God says, I will completely fulfill because now, finally, after so many temptations that he missed over and over and over again, he has this true test from God and he demonstrates his faithfulness to it. He does not uh, he does not hesitate to sacrifice Isaac. They look up. There's a ram in the bush. The ram is sacrificed. Everybody comes down the mountain singing, Kumbaya, sweet baby Jesus, whatever Old Testament variation <laughs> that would be. Um and so that's a bit uh, of an overview for Genesis 22. Uh, but what I want to do instead is I want to do what Gusta Gonzalez talks about in Santa Biblia, the Bible through Hispanic eyes. I don't want to just look at an expositional interpretation of that passage, which we did in part one. I want to look at it from a cultural lens or a cultural background. Um, anybody who's been to a, any type of a good, hopefully, Bible study, then you have been exposed to Near Eastern culture and the ramifications of what it means for someone to sacrifice their son, what it means to have a son, and the reasons why Abraham and Sarah were waiting so long for Isaac. So they would have someone to pass down um, their family line to, their lineage, uh, their family wealth. Sarah, because it's a patriarchal society, women were not permitted to own or have anything. And so the way in which she demonstrated her value to her husband was to be able to have children. And so that's some of the cultural uh, backdrop of Genesis 22. I want to jump over that, which uh, I think for the sake of time, I want to be able to get to what's taking place in America. Unless you've been living under a rock these last few weeks, uh, then you've been made really aware of some of the pain that's been happening, um, not just in the black community, but at the nation as a whole. Uh, there have been two killings in the last seven days, one from Ahmaud Arbery, um, who was killed uh, in Georgia, really actually February 23rd, but it hit mainstream media these last few weeks. uh, And there's been just this national outcry um, from the African-American community and our allies that have said, what exactly is happening right now? This brother was jogging while black and all of a sudden he's dead. What's going on? And then another guy, my namesake, a gentleman by the name of Sean Reed, 
who was murdered uh, on April 29th. And we've seen the New York Times articles that talk about the police joking about it being a closed casket funeral. And so we see the realities of these two horrific incidents taking place. Um, and, you know, I'm sure uh, the question is for all of us, like, well, where do we go from here? What do we do? How do we engage in these things? How do we respond? What is an appropriate Christian response? What is an appropriate black response? Uh, how are we Christian and black or black and Christian? Which one informs the other? How do we navigate those things? Um, you know, this is where probably I'm normally I'm supposed to be chanting no justice, no peace or black lives matter. Um, but to be honest with you, I am tired. I am tired. I'm tired of having the same conversations. I'm tired of reading the same news reports. I'm tired of seeing the same unarmed black people killed over and over and over and over again. Um, this is not just uh, these two shootings. It's, it is a collection of people who have been murdered in the last decade in the United States of America. I remember when Michael Brown was killed and the non-indictment verdict came back uh, in that case against Darren Wilson. And it was right before Thanksgiving. And I went home to see my mom. Uh, who at that time was 70, and she was so peaceful and so chill. And my friends and I, we were irate and upset. And I was like, you know, did you see the news? Did you hear what happened? And she looked at me very calmly. She said, Sean, I have forgotten the names of all the unarmed Black people who have been killed in this country. She said, you are young. You still have hope. She said, I know what it means to be Black in America. Nothing ever happens. And I wrestled with that. Because this 70-year-old woman had more hopeless peace <laughs> than any of my friends. And I've talked about that before in other podcasts and in interviews and on my blogs. And I think my mother is a woman of hope and she's a woman of faith. I think what she's saying in that moment is you have to know the context of the community in which you live. I don't think she was saying, like, give up hope and stop believing that change will come. I think my mom was saying, uh, you have to know the timing of God and you have to know the location for which you live. Um, what I mean by that is, uh, I like to play chess. I don't know if y'all know that, but I do. I play chess pretty regularly. I've been playing since I was in the sixth grade. And well, that's kind of not true. I stopped playing for a while, but I picked it up about four years ago. And I mean, I got into it. Like I bought some books. Uh, I got some uh, hardbacks. I got some books on my Kindle. I started looking at videos on YouTube. I subscribed to chess.com. I'm Sean2282, S-E-A-N-2282. Come at me, bro. I promise. I got you. I'm at 1,095 on my player rating right now. I'm doing good. I started looking at all these different resources so I can learn how to play chess and cover my gaps. And one thing surprised me, all the resources that I looked at, every single last one of them, uh, people who were Russian, people who were German, people who were French, people who were American, black, white, Asian, Latino, it didn't matter. Every single last one of them, they all said the same thing. And it surprised me because that was not how I was taught. I was taught to play chess, to know the pieces and to know the value of the pieces and then to just attack it, as my friend Andy says. But if you look at any resource on how to play chess, what they will tell you is you need to know two things of the utmost importance. You need to know the pieces and their value on the board. But then you also need to study the board itself. You need to know which part of the terrain is the most powerful and the most dangerous to your opponent and what part of the terrain is most dangerous to you. You can know the pieces all day long. You can know who the king is, who the queen is. You can know all those different pieces. But if you do not know the land in which you reside, if you don't know the land where you were located, 
you won't know you're in danger until it is too late. And that's what I want to be able to talk about just for a few moments with Ahmad and Sean. Um, I am tired. I am tired of having the same conversations around race and ethnicity in America from Trayvon Martin and Eric Garner and John Crawford and Tamir Rice and Renisha McBride, uh, Philando Castile and Alton Sterling, Walter Scott, Terrence Crusher, Freddie Gray, Sandra Bland, Charleston Nine, Laquan McDonald, Jordan Davis, William Chapman. Um, the list goes on and on and on. There have been that's that's not even all of them. The list goes on, and I'm tired of having these same conversations about this. It pops up over and over and over again, and we keep having the same conversations because we always talk about the pieces on the board. We always talk about the value of this person's life. If you watch the news, you know what will happen within the span of 24 to 36 to 48 hours. These people will be killed twice. Not only are their lives taken away from them, but they will also be vilified in the news, in mainstream media. We'll find out if they smoked weed. We'll find out if they were addicted to drugs. Never mind the fact that we've talked about mass incarceration and as it relates to um, racial discrimination in America, that the numbers show completely there's a proclivity towards, at least in the 80s and 90s and in the 21st century, proclivity towards marijuana and crack cocaine addictions in the African-American community. But there are higher rates of crystal meth, of powdered cocaine, and marijuana in the white communities. Black people make up 12% of the population in the United States and 50% of the prison complexes. So how is it possible that you have more drug use in white communities you have than you do in black communities? Because it's statistically impossible for them to be the majority in the country for us to make up 12 to 13%, but we get more, we get arrested more, uh, more frequently than they do. None of that makes sense. And you can look at any of the data for that. Um, from Brian Stevenson's uh, work with the Racial Justice Initiative to Michelle Alexander and the new Jim Crow, uh, mass incarceration, the age of colorblindness, all of the data reveals that information. But again, we only look at the pieces of the board. We look at the police officers or the white residents and we see if their lives were in danger. Or we look at or we vilify the African-Americans, the people who've lost their lives, the black and brown bodies, because our brown brothers and sisters are included in that, too. All of our Mexican, uh, Mexican American, and Latino and Hispanic brothers and sisters. It's not just black people that are dying in this country right now. But we only look at the pieces. We do not look at the board. And I think in order for us to have a candid conversation about race and ethnicity, we have got to be willing to look at the board. Um, we've got to be looking at the land of America, the location in which we exist, because that will let us know when we are in danger. As Dr. Willie James Jennings said, uh, we have to know the soil, the soil, the dirt of America. Uh, we don't talk about it a lot, but it needs to be brought into the conversation that there's a context for these things taking place. And that is, uh, I don't know if it's going to be a shock to some people, but we do know that America was not founded with any other ethnic group in mind aside really from white men. I mean, like women weren't even included in that. White men, the country was founded really with them in mind. You can go back and look at any of our founding documents. Um, go back and look at, read the entire U.S. Constitution. Read the entire Declaration of Independence. R listen to or read the lyrics for the entire Star Spangled Banner, and you will find the true litany, the true DNA of the United States of America. It's in all of our founding documents, this myth of Anglo-Saxon white superiority that the, the Catholic Church uh, gave a mandate from England, this idea of manifest destiny, 
that it was the church's responsibility to go to any place where people did not speak English and it was your God-given right to take that land and to take it over. And that uh, the predominant uh, language in that land was to be English. That's one of the ways in which Anglo-Saxon white superiority manifests itself. First of all, it's by language. You have to be able to speak the king's English. Second, if you can speak the king's English, then you have access to what? The king's institutions, the king's education system. Uh, and then if you have access to the language and the institutions, then you have the access to what? Jobs and to land and to home ownership. It's that type of hierarchy of structure that exists, even in the United States right now. And we've seen that rhetoric from political officials or from even some of the racist videos that have been posted on social media. Speak English. This is America. Well, what are they insinuating with that, right? You are less than. You are not as valuable because you do not speak what? The language of the land. The initial litmus test, if you are to be a citizen of the United States of America, is if you can write, if you can write or speak English succinctly. If you can't speak English, you don't have access to anything. You can't make an income. You can't access to institutions. And if you do, you know that you will have a quality less education or a quality less position. You will not make as much money uh, as a manager or as a CEO in that particular company. And we've seen that happen time and time again, right? The people who clean all of our buildings around the country, more often than not, English is not their first language. That's not the stereotype. That's just a reality of what's going on in our country right now. And we've seen that with COVID-19. How many people are black and brown have day jobs, day labor jobs that require them to go into warehouses and work um, for pennies on the dollar, but the CEOs are staying at home and they are racking in billions or they're making bonuses even during a global pandemic. That's in the DNA of America. And we don't discuss the land. You've got to be able to discuss the land in which we live. That if the United States was founded with this idea of patriarchy, of the Anglo-Saxon myth of white superiority, what does that mean for how we interpret the times right now? Uh, quite simply, it means America's been racist from jump. And I don't mean to try to sound cavalier or dismissive of these things, but I think it's important for us to know that we cannot, we can be hurt and we can be viscerally allergic to the unarmed murder of a black person in this country, it shouldn't surprise us. America has always been that way. There has yet to be a period in America's history where these things were not taking place. The only time where it happened was the Reconstruction, those 20 years after the Civil War. That's the only 20-year period, 15 to 20-year period, where America actually lived up to its ideals. And they got so mad that Jim Crow came after that. And for 90 years, we lynched more people in the 90 years following the Civil War than we did in the 350 years of slavery that preceded it. Uh, that's just a little history fact for you. So <laughs> uh, that's the founding of America, this Anglo-Saxon myth of white superiority. Now, you're probably wondering, Sean, why are you talking about all this? I thought we were on Genesis 22. Stick a fork there. I'm coming back to that. Hang on. Why am I talking about this idea of Anglo-Saxon superiority? Because, again, if you know the land, then you recognize that that myth of white superiority manifests itself in a number of ways. In order to be superior, that means that something else has to be inferior. If you are better, then something else has to be less. And what we've seen in the West, in the United States of America, is that that's how the whole language and idea of race came about. Race is a social construct. When we talk about this idea of racism in America, we talk about culture, we talk about ethnicity, and we talk about race. We use them interchangeably, and they are three different things. Ethnicity is your genetic makeup that will never change, no matter what happens. Your ethnicity is your country of origin that is your uh, ethnic, your genetic background. 
that's always going to change. Um, I am 69% African. I am 27% European. So I've got Congo. I've got Nigerian. I've got Kenyan. I've got Ethiopian in me. I've also got Welsh. I've got Dutch. I've got French. As my African-American studies professor says, I can show you where the slave ship stopped when we look at the map. And you can see the literal circle of where it stopped. And I have all of those countries swimming around in my bloodstream. Um, and so when white superiority comes into play, one of the things that it says is, right, if it is above, then something else has to be below. And without question, with this construct of race, this social construct that says I can look at someone and I can identify your skin is darker, therefore you are less than, which is how slavery came about. It is the notion that people of a lighter skin hue are more intelligent, that we can speak with uh, the king's English in a more exact tone. And as a consequence, the darker skinned peoples around the globe have always been treated as less than. And there is the perception of a threat of someone who has a darker skin complexion. It is the perceived threat of that body. In the United States of America, a free black body. You didn't hear about these things, or we can't find reports of these things, um, really in the midst of slavery, because they were enslaved. Uh, African Americans were raped, they were murdered, they were kidnapped, they were tortured, they were killed, but they were under the control of white superiority. And the moment that slavery ended, then we've started to see what? The lynchings, uh, mass incarceration, civil rights movements, Black Lives Matter. You start to see that even though the system has changed, this ethos of white supremacy has remained the same. A free black body is dangerous because it's not under Anglo-Saxon rule. By the way, I'm getting all of this from Kelly Brown Douglas. Uh, Stand your ground, black bodies and the justice of God. Stand your ground, black bodies and the justice of God. A phenomenal theological treatise written by Reverend Dr. Kelly Brown Douglas. She says, again, that, that Anglo-Saxon myth of white superiority, it always perceives a free black body as a threat. One that is not under control is one that is dangerous. And so it's not under Anglo-Saxon rule, so it has to be perceived as a threat. Um, it had to be perceived as a threat also because it interrupts the social order. Let's go back to Ahmaud Arbery for a second. Why was this brother killed? He is a black man jogging down the street, minding his own business, and he is perceived as a threat. Uh, what the gentleman said or the man said that killed him, oh, there was somebody uh, in the neighborhood that had been breaking into houses, which they have no police record for. And Ahmad, in our minds, fit the description of someone who was doing that. So because he looked like somebody that we have no reports for, but hypothetically was reported to be breaking into houses, he must be dangerous. He must be worthy to be followed. And we have a God-given right to not only follow him, but to stop him, to engage with him. And if he is unarmed and fights us, we can take his life and we will be protected under the law. How does that make sense? Well, again, white superiority. It says, whether not in the law books, but culturally in the ethos, because Georgia didn't do anything for two months, that someone white has the authority to be able to police the streets, whether they have a badge or not. And it also means that someone who is black and free is perceived as a threat because they are not under control or not under uh, the rule, really. Arguably, if somebody was white, because black people jogging in the hood is not a threat. Black people jogging, jogging uh, in the brown side of town is not a threat. We don't go around like shooting each other when we're jogging. It's only when you see someone who is a person of color jogging into a white space that all of a sudden that perception of them being a danger 
uh, or a threat to the social order that's there, that's when that starts to manifest itself. Um, a free black body, it literally points to a, dis a different cosmic order. If black people have the rights and the freedoms to be able to jog wherever they want to, to engage in spaces wherever they want to, that means that one ethnic group is not superior to the other one. It means that we all are equal. And for whatever reasons, that Anglo-Saxon myth, that terrifies people, white people who believe in that. I'm not saying that all white people do by any stretch of the imagination, but for the white people who do subscribe to that Anglo-Saxon myth, to see someone black and free roaming around, there is the implicit bias that this person is dangerous and that they may take something from us, either our land, our life, uh, our freedom or our liberties, and therefore they must be pursued and if necessary, stopped. And so we see this perception of a dangerous black body. We see this perception of a criminal black body, that a free black body must be guilty of something. And that was a mod's crime. He had dark skin. And so he was jogging. He had to have been guilty of something that we are not given the presumption of innocence. Um, that what we see from this case with Ahmaud Arbery is that the one thing that he was guilty of was trespassing into a white space. If he was white jogging down the street, we wouldn't be having this conversation. He'd still be alive. Because he was black jogging down a white residential neighborhood, there was the assumption that he was guilty of something because he was not supposed to be there. And that's where we've gotten to where we are. Now, I can already hear you thinking yet again, Sean, you still ain't told us what in the world this has to do with Genesis 22. I am glad you asked. That's a fantastic question. Um, and that's why it's simply, look, these two brothers, uh, Gregory McMichael, the father, Travis McMichael, the son, uh, they were recorded killing Ahmaud Arbery. I don't know if they saw a problem with their actions or not. I don't know how many white people in Georgia saw a problem with their actions. The reports have already come out that the city in which all this took place has been known for its racism and its injustice. Um, this murder has raised questions for some, raised awareness for some, and questions for too many others. The reasons why I'm talking about all of this, the language of white supremacy and white superiority and this Anglo-Saxon myth is because all of these conversations are going to begin happening in the United States right now, and they will not simply happen among white people. I said it. They will most likely not happen among white people. People of color will be asked to engage in these conversations. And that's why I'm tired. We will be asked to bracket our mourning to help interpret why are African-Americans so upset right now? This is one isolated incident. It is one shooting. Uh, Greg McMichael and Travis, they didn't own slaves. Uh, they weren't in the Klan. Why is it that there was one shooting that took place and all of the African-American community is up in arms and livid and we don't take into account the context of this shooting, the social order in which uh, the social location in which this takes place, that it is eight years into, or excuse me, six years in, no, eight years into like this frequency of unarmed shootings that have happened in the United States of America uh, that has raised awareness for this generation of people from Trayvon Martin on up until now, that we're in the midst of a global pandemic, that we are practicing social isolation. And even in the midst of that, an unarmed black body is perceived as dangerous. How does that fit into Genesis 22? Well, let's see. Uh, in the news right now, you've got Greg and you've got Travis. You've got a father and you've got a son and you've got blood spilled on the street. And in Genesis 22, you've got a father and a son 
and you've got innocent blood spilled on the altar. Can you see where I'm going? Neither the blood of the father or of the son was spilled in Genesis 22. They found a ram in the bush at the wrong place at the wrong time. Gusto Gonzalez talks about that in his book, Santa Biblia, the Bible through Hispanic eyes. He says a proper exegetical interpretation of the text is to put ourselves in the place of Abraham willing to sacrifice our son. One could argue that we need to put ourselves in the place of Sarah, the mother who is not mentioned, who loves her child and can probably sense that something is happening. We are taught to put ourselves even in the place of Isaac, that our lives could be sacrificed for the purposes of God. But what Gusto Gonzalez says, if you look at a cultural interpretation of the text, he says, we're not Abraham, we're not Sarah, we're not Isaac. We are the ram in the bush. We are the ones that are sacrificed. And people come back down the mountain having had this spiritual transformational experience where they've either encountered God, they become aware of racism and injustice in America, and now they're going to live their lives differently because of a singular moment. But what about that ram? Innocent, caught in the wrong place at the wrong time, dead. Life is done. That's what it feels like to be black in America. We are the rams in too many bushes around the country. There is no respite for these families, for that litany of names that I've mentioned and so many others that I've forgotten. Their families still grieve. Trayvon's mother still longs for her son to hear his voice. Michael Brown's mother, whom I have met, still goes to that place where he was killed. His father still breaks down in tears. You can vilify these kids in the news all you want to. We can say that they are of immoral character, that they had criminal histories. That still doesn't mean that their lives should be taken away because they've got dark skin. And the rest of the country's moved on with their lives. Their families haven't. Uh, like God saying to, uh, to Cain after he kills Abel, um, where the blood of your brother is crying out to me from the ground. What have you done? I heard a Jewish rabbi comment that the reasons why um, when God says that the blood of your brother is crying out, it's not just the blood of that one person, but it's the blood of that entire generation, that entire family line that has been cut off because blood has been spilled. That man will not have any children. That family line is now done for however long it was on the earth, for years, decades, or centuries, that family line is now gone. And what's the consequence of that? Because it's the United States of America, because we know the land and we know the pieces on the board that you had a former police officer and a former police investigator in one person and his son killed an unarmed black person and it was on tape. There's a strong possibility in Georgia that there will be no consequences from this. There is a strong possibility that a father and a son have spilled blood and they will go on about their merry way, having learned a new experience about America and that ram in the name of Ahmad Arbery's, his blood will be spilled, never to be recovered, life to be lost, his family irrevocably altered. Sisters and brothers, we have a difficult journey ahead of us. Your friends of color who are around you, um, as scary as it may seem, I want you to imagine them being a ram in the bush. 
Because we don't think about that. We don't think that it can happen to any of our friends who are people of color. I want you to imagine that just for a moment. You or your good or your spouse or your good friend or your good friend's spouse, any of those people or your niece, your nephew, your godson. We don't think about them in that capacity. What if at some point, not the God of the Bible, but the God of America, racism, white supremacy, would one day call for the sacrifice of the blood of that ram in the bush, that black body, that brown body to be shed solely so that someone else can learn that racism still exists in America. I want to suggest that we use the voice that God has given us to raise the clarion call that we do everything in our power to make sure that there is no more black and brown blood spilled in this country because of racism and injustice. We have a moral and ethical, a spiritual, a theological responsibility to stand up in the times and be viscerally allergic to this. There shouldn't be any more Ahmads or Shans. Um, so what can we do? I think as people of color, we have to guard our hearts and guard our minds. Um, figure out how we want to engage and disengage. If you are white, I want to challenge you to become autodidactic. Go online, type in books on racism. What can white people do to help combat injustice? Type it into Google. Be as autodidactic as you are as every other field of study and discover the ways in which you too can use your voice, your power, your privilege to affect change in this country. Sisters and brothers, go in peace, go in joy, go in love. It's your boy, Sean. I'll holler at you next time. Take care. Peace. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We want to point you in the direction of our Student Crisis and Relief Fund. If you're interested in supporting and advocating for Black college students, make sure you check out the website subcultureinc.org backslash studentcrisisrelief. Thank you again.